Here at Lady Farmer, we talk about so many different aspects of slow and sustainable living, a subject matter that can at times feel confusing, overwhelming, even misleading. And that's why a few years ago, we set out to write a book that might be a guide for those seeking a life of beauty, simplicity, and sustainability. We're thrilled to be able to offer you our own small guide for cultivating slow living, sustainable simplicity close to home available in our online marketplace. In the book, you've woven an easy-to-digest narrative of stories, recipes, tips, resources, ideas, and reflection. This collection of essays and resources will guide you to think about your own relationship to the planet, what you eat, what you wear, and how you live a sustainable lifestyle. It also contains a 21-day slow-living challenge of daily thought exercises to lead you in the process. For you Good Dirt listeners, we are offering free shipping of this wonderful little book with the code THEGOODDIRT in our online marketplace. So use the code THEGOODDIRT, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T at checkout when you go to purchase your copy of The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living in our online marketplace for free shipping. That's The Good Dirt at The Lady Farmer online marketplace for free shipping on The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks, everybody. I would love for everyone to know that they have, in regards to the law, significant creative power to create and cultivate the farm business and the farm lifestyle that you all want if you take the time to talk about your needs and your goals and your expectations to grow your slow living, your lady farmer, your your resiliency dreams far into the future. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. Well, Emma, another month is upon us. Yeah, and it's your birthday month. Yes, and another one of my favorite things about July is that it is a great time to intentionally be loud and proud about saying no to plastic because it's plastic-free July. Yes, plastic-free July is great. It's a global movement, and it helps millions be a part of the solution to the plastic problem by choosing to refuse single-use plastics. It's it's basically just a big campaign across social media and really everywhere to just lift up the need for reducing our plastic use. This campaign started in 2011, so a full 10 years ago. So now we're in, in a decade of Plastic Free July. That's exciting. It's really grown so much so that last year, July 2020, an estimated 326 million people across the globe this challenge, and they were from 177 countries. And then about 85% of the people that took part in the challenge have made changes that have become a habit or a way of life. In other words, they've changed what they do as a result of this exercise. Yeah, that's super impressive. And I think the best one, the most impressive is that last one there, and the most meaningful that 85% of people that take part in this challenge over the past decade change their behaviors to become a way of life. So, Mom, are you going to do it this year? Oh, yes. They make it really easy to participate. You just go to the website, plasticfreejuly.org, and click Take the Challenge. And it will guide you in your own decisions and goals regarding what you want to accomplish during the month. Because the fact is that everyone's different, and they have their own limitations, and whatever is going on in everybody's life. The point is that everyone can do something 
And there are 326 million people out there who care enough about this plastic mess we're in to look at their own habits and change them. So how about you, Emma? Are you in? Absolutely. Let's make a pact to check in on this specific thing every week during Plastic Free July here on The Good Dirt. We'll see how we're doing and what we've run up against and what we've changed in our own lives at least for the week, if not for forever, I think that will keep us on our toes. That is a great idea. And for you Good Dirt listeners out there, we'd also love to hear from you, our community, about what some of your biggest challenges are around reducing plastic in your life. Yeah, so you can email us at thegooddirtpodcast at gmail.com. That's all lowercase, all spelled out, T-H-E-G-O-O-D-D-I-R-T podcast at gmail.com. So there's two D's in there. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from you about your challenges around reducing plastic, what you're having trouble with, what you find yourself, you know, you have an alternative, but you still end up reaching for that. What if it's a plastic to go cup or the thing that I just came to my head is I have a dog and I live in the city and we use plastic bags for picking up dog poop. So that'll definitely be one of my challenges I'll have to think about. But yeah, we would love to hear from you and we'll chat about them on the show over the next few weeks. So email us at the good dirt podcast at gmail.com your plastic challenges, but also anything. If you want to drop us a line and say, Hey, we want to remind you guys that that line is open. So yeah. Oh, that'll be fun. We'll enjoy hearing from everybody. And you want to tell them about the uh, thing that's going on in the marketplace? Oh yeah. Almost forgot. Thanks for reminding me. We are having a month long sale on all of our zero waste products in the Lady Farmer Marketplace that can help you on your plastic free July journey and beyond. We have some wonderful kitchen sponges that are made out of wool, actually, climate beneficial regenerative wool from Lonnie Estill, who is a past podcast guest from um, her farm. And we have, what else do we have, Mom? We have, oh, don't forget about our zero waste bundle. It's got a lot of goodies in it. That's a fun thing. Yeah, and that's a good starter pack too. How do they get it? Is there a code? Yes, they can use the code Plastic Free July at checkout, and that will get you fifteen percent off your zero waste products purchases. Okay, so on to this week's episode. I'm really enthused about this one because I think it's the first one we've had that addresses some really important issues in the up-and-coming farming and homesteading space. As our title suggests, it's a great discussion about what's beyond the vision of owning and operating your own small farm operation, growing your own food, caring for your own production animals, and all of those wonderful dreams come true. Yeah, and so often the goal is just getting to that point, which seems like enough in itself, and then everything will just go from there, right? You'll have the farm, and you'll be doing the thing, and that's it. (laughs) Well, as it turns out, in many cases, more than we'd like to think, in fact. The answer to that is not exactly. There are lots of things to think about and questions to ask you and your business and your life partner whoever you're working with there, about what to expect out of this endeavor and what the contingency plans are for things that come up that were not a part of your original vision. Yes. We're talking about some legal stuff. So things that are just really not fun to think about, but are so important to know about at least and to know which questions to ask. So today we have Eva Moss. She is our expert and an expert because she has lived this and continues to work to educate and support others who may find themselves in any sort of similar position. Eva is a teacher and a grower. In 2017, she started HeartStrong Farm, a small community-supported agriculture farm in central North Carolina. After leasing 16 acres, building a greenhouse, forming an LLC, establishing a presence at local farmers markets, and growing food for over 40 households, the farm business underwent a hard transition when she and her then partner separated, leaving her and the farm business legally vulnerable as a result. So through this tough experience, Eva learned the deep value of hard conversations and good communication and cultivating strong, healthy relationships on the farm. She now works as an educator with Farm Commons, helping farmers nationwide understand and resolve their farm law issues through baseline legal knowledge and effective communication tools. 
Eva continues to grow a big garden with her life partner for their home subsistence and is an avid knitter and food preservationist. You can follow along with her at Eva Magdalena on Instagram. Yes, she is quite the lady farmer. She's really fun to follow on social media. She's a joy to talk to. And we hope you enjoy this conversation and that you learn something. This is good stuff, y'all. Have a listen. It's good dirt. (laughs) Thanks, Emma. And thanks, Mary, for having me. I'm super excited to be chatting with you both from North Carolina. It's pretty cool to be talking to two gals, lady farmers in Virginia. That's one of the upsides of the pandemic and then all the virtual conversions. But yeah, a bit about me. That question gives me a little bit of an identity crisis whenever (laughs) I'm asked because I have, as many people do, such a patchwork background. I am a New Zealand-born Samoan American, and so I was born in Auckland, New Zealand. And after two weeks of being there, I was swiftly moved over to the island of Palau and have been moving just about every three to four years since. My father worked in the U.S. Foreign Service as a career diplomat, and my mom is a Samoan girl born and bred. She's from the island of Upolu, and she met my dad working at the U.S. Embassy in Auckland. And so we've had a very worldly, international experience as a family, which has definitely colored my worldview and perspective. Although it's kind of funny to say that now because I'm looking out the window from a farm in a 300 person town in North Carolina, (laughs) which we can talk a bit more about that later about how I got to this plot of land. But yeah, I strongly identify with both sides of my family. My dad's side is from Alabama, deep roots in Anniston and Mobile. And I know Emma from the University of the South. We both went to Swanee. Hey, Swanee people out there. (laughs) Emma's raising a hand. (laughs) And I am a teacher. I am a avid gardener. I have been a market farmer. I am a restorative justice practitioner. I am a fiber artist and I am a very devoted daughter right now. I'm I'm going through a season of life that's very family focused. My mom is battling severe illness and the majority of my family is in New Zealand right now. So just navigating a lot within the space of family and realizing how much connection is offered to me through being in the soil. Wow. Thank you. Amazing. Tell us a little bit about how you got there to North Carolina and what you're currently doing with the land where you are now. Yeah, I got to a 16-acre property where I am now in the tiny town of Staley, North Carolina, and we are located pretty much on a county line between Chatham and Randolph County in the heart of North Carolina. If you look at a map of North Carolina, there is a square in the center, and that is Randolph County. And we are on the right side towards the line of that county. And I found this property in 2017 listed on North Carolina Farm Link, which is a land matching website out of North Carolina Cooperative Extension. And I know that Oregon has a farm link. California has a farm link. Um, It's depending on what funded projects Cooperative Extension has. There's usually a farm link program to match farmland owners with farmland seekers. Maryland has one. Mom, is that what Maryland Land Link is? Yes, it is. And we are in Maryland, Eva. Oh, okay. Even better. Three states. Yeah, it's all like really close together. I'm in Maryland. We're actually a lot closer to most towns in Virginia than we are in Maryland because we're really kind of isolated. It was in DC. Yeah. But we live just like less than a mile from the river. So we can look at Virginia from where we are. But yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just confirming that for local people listening, Maryland has a program like that too, and I'm sure Virginia does. Is that uh, what you're describing where a farmer can apply to work a plot of land that they do not own for, usually it's a minimal rent? I guess it's set up, I would assume that it's set up differently in different states. So in North Carolina, it's very much a website, like FarmLink is a website tool where farmland owners can post 
their land for sale or for lease and can list whether they have buildings, how much acreage, what the history of use is, and interested people can make an inquiry and reach out to that that farm. Right, so it's like a listing service. Yeah. But I know in Oregon and in, I think in Washington State too, they have like a, a mentor program that goes along with their farm link program where Mm -hmm. you as a farmer can be matched with a landowner and they actually walk with you through all the steps of making a successful match on the land. Cool. And so then I guess I'm curious too, just backing up a little bit more, like how did you get from Swanee to farming and like North Carolina? I think I know a little bit of how, but tell us your story. Well, I will say that my farming and gardening story started at St. Mary's Convent up at Swanee. Oh, yes. Yeah, the sisters, shout out to Uh Sister Elizabeth and Sister Madeline Mary, who took me in as a anthropology major needing and wanting to write (laughs) a thesis on intentional community and the potential and possibility for sustainability to thrive within an intentional community that makes sustainability part of the goals for being in that space and among the people. And that's very much a part of the Sisters of St. Mary's Order of Their Days. They're a Benedictine community that lives by the Benedictine principle of ora et labora, work and prayer. And part of their work is stewarding this really lovely garden where they grow produce and flowers for their kitchen, but also to sell the farmer's market. And over probably more than 400 plants now, but back in 2015, they had just planted 400 lavender plants that me and one of my girlfriends, Katie, went out to volunteer and help with that big planting. And that lavender was being grown for Thistle Farms, which is a social enterprise that makes really lovely body products. Um, I'm sure some folks might be familiar seeing them at the Whole Foods, especially if you're in the Southeast, they're pretty prevalent. And that whole business is run by um, women who are survivors of domestic abuse, sex trafficking, and all kinds of horrors that life can throw our way and are making beautiful products. And that was so inspiring to me to see how something that you could grow in a garden could grow to have such a profound impact on people's lives. And I've been chasing that feeling ever since then. That's led me onto gardens and farms in Tennessee, eventually up to New Hampshire, where I woofed on a small homestead farm, very much permaculture focused. There, you know, we built a compost toilet. We were planting in spirals. This was like all very interesting and new to me. And then I made my way onto more production style farms that were growing for community supported agriculture shares and for larger markets. And then in 2017, two and a half years later, I decided I was ready to try to give it a go myself and found the land through NC FarmLink and started HeartStrong Farm here in Staley. And you started HeartStrong as like the idea was, is a CSA model, right? And it was a production farm for, you were like looking to make money. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that (laughs) was the goal. I guess a little bit of background. I had, after working on that, that homestead in New Hampshire, been inspired to study food and agriculture law because I was really intrigued by the barriers that a lot of small-scale farms face when it comes to zoning and local town governance in terms of what's possible for pop-up farm stands and farmers markets. And it was a one-year master's program. And I came out of that program with a template lease, a sample operating agreement for an LLC, and was like, really, I felt like I had my paperwork in order to start my farm business in tandem with all the experience that I had gotten, like actually working on farms. And so I thought about it as a business from the beginning. And there were many things I did not think about while I was thinking about the farm as a business, (laughs) which we can get to. But yeah, definitely a main income farm with CSA being the primary business model and also selling whatever was extra through farmers markets nearby. You bring up a really valid point of entering into the enterprise with a knowledge of the legal framework that you need to make a go of it. So what else can you share with our listening audience about 
creating that foundation for themselves and the problems you might run into. And, you know, what do you do when you run up against things? Where do you turn? Just what can you tell all of us about this? (laughs) And if that's a good leeway into the work that you're doing now with Farm Commons, just take us there. So yes, I am an educator now. I am no longer farming full time. I made the transition in towards the end of 2017, actually, to looking for off-farm work and um, I'm now full-time at Farm Commons and we are a national nonprofit organization that specializes in legal education for farming communities, really focused on transactional business law. So think leases, customer agreements, wholesale agreements, navigating insurance policies, writing business governance documents. So really what it boils down to is we focus on the tools of the law that are within our power to create ourselves. So outside of attorney's offices and outside of courtrooms through hard conversations where we actually talk about our needs, our goals, and our expectations that are grounded in a very basic understanding of the law. And so what we do at Farm Commons is we teach farmers the 10 best practices for legal resilience on the farm that will establish like a baseline of legal resilience that farmers can start doing right away once they decide which of those 10 steps apply to their unique situation on the farm. They can learn that through our workshops that we offer on our website. They're all virtual now or through self-guided learning through pathways on our website farmcommons.org, which we just launched a new version of this past week. So we are also in the midst of a launch. (laughs) Yay. So the legal framework, interestingly, I've found through my work that there's kind of like two ways, two common ways people think about it. Either they don't think about it at all until an issue comes up and then they're like really in it and they really need help. And that's usually beyond the point where (laughs) we can be proactive. And so we have to think about you know, who might be a good attorney in their community to refer to, or it's people who have been aware of issues with other friends or from the past who want to be proactive now before an issue even comes up. And so they're like, they want to learn it all. They want to nerd out on farm law. They want to know what hard conversations they need to have and what paperwork they need to get together. And I'd say that I learned so much from working with both those types of farmers and more at Farm Commons. So can you tell us a little bit about your own experience into whatever detail you want to take us that kind of put you there? Well, at the end, probably the fall of 2017, so three quarters of the way into my first year full-time farming. So in January, I just moved to this parcel of land with my then partner, romantic partner, and we had set up the LLC in February, built, and that's limited liability company. We formed that with the state of North Carolina, opened up a bank account for the farm that was attached to the LLC. And so we both technically had access to it by being default members of the LLC, having formed it together, built our greenhouse at the end of February and got into the ground, plowed it all. And we're at market by the first week of April. And (laughs) it moved really fast. We had, (laughs) you know, we knew nobody in the immediate community. I had had some contacts, but they were closer to the the Raleigh-Durham Chapel Hill area. And the farm is about an hour away from there. And so we started out at every little farmer's market that we could drive to. And I was farming full time, doing all of the field work. My partner then was helping out around a full-time job in IT where he was either working from home on the computer or commuting an hour into the Raleigh-Durham area. And so the farm just like really took over. We were trying to, you know, grow as much as possible, maintain our bills with his off-farm income and, you know, putting so much energy into growing the farm business left us with not much to actually talk about why we were doing what we were doing or asking the hard questions of, is this the most efficient way to do what we're doing? Is this what we both want? You know, what is our vision as individuals and do we have a shared vision together? And, you know, we were full throttle in April, May, June, July, 
come August, September, we were not communicating very well at all. And we actually ended up separating. And there was no plan in that operating agreement for the LLC that I was so proud of coming out of law school with Mm -hmm. (laughs) for how we would separate our interests in the farm business, uh, how we would organize our assets after we broke up who would have access and responsibility to the lease land, who would pay the bills. That was such a mess that we figured out like the really hard way. And for the farm business and myself, we were left especially legally vulnerable because I wanted to stay with the farm. And because the off-farm income was no longer a part of that equation, the farm business then became unsustainable. And I think that's something that's becoming more talked about in the sustainable, regenerative, small farming community food systems world is the true cost of being able to farm full-time and to own land and to be a farmer. There's often off-farm income involved um, or family money or inheritance or some kind of trust that makes it viable. And for our equation, it was no longer viable. And so I was very grateful. One very hot day in July when the following year, when I was, you know, I tried to grow the CSA from 12 to 40 members. I tried my hardest to make it work on the books and it just was not working out. I couldn't even afford my own health insurance. My parents were helping me with the rent. Like it was so unsustainable and I was getting so burnt out. And I got a newsletter from Farm Commons and <laughs> our executive director, Rachel, who is a powerhouse in the sustainable agriculture world, not only in law, but in catering and CSAs in the Midwest, she was hiring and she was looking for someone with farm experience and law experience. And I was like, oh my God, please let that be me. Like I have a little (laughs) bit of both, like, please. (laughs) And um, yeah, it turned out to be a good relationship. And I've learned so much more about the importance of having hard conversations through my work at Farm Commons, because that is the approach that we take to legal resiliency. It's not about you know, looking for a statute that is a silver bullet that you can use against, you know, the risk of being sued or someone else. It's not a waiver or a sign. It's really about having hard conversations with your landlord, with your CSA customers, with your employees, with your insurance agent about what your needs and expectations are and theirs too. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. You know, we talk so much about, your dreams of having a farm and people, you know, quitting their jobs and finding a piece of land and going out and starting the homestead. There's so much of that talk. But when do you ever hear anyone talk about when things don't work out or when things go wrong or unexpected things come up? That's just really not out there very much. And when you do, it's usually about money. Never hear anyone talking about this part of it. Right. I mean, it's all related, but so interesting. And it's really helpful to hear your experience too and your perspective. So thank you. Yes, thank you so much. And it's so real. So thank you so much for just sharing that with us. And you are bringing to the table, maybe not direct solutions, but at least pathways for people to find a way out of these kinds of issues. Yeah, I agree. And I think what you're saying, Mary, about, you know, not solutions, but pathways is so important because every farm business, every farm, you know, relationship, whether it's a couple, families, best friends who are farming together, they come with their own nuances of the relationship, what kind of land, what the land access situation is, you know, what kind of production is going on, the needs and goals of each relationship and each farm will be different. And so there's no one solution or a handful of solutions. It's all about pathways and making decisions on what to do next based on your unique circumstances. And so at Farm Commons, we're we're not big fans of model or template agreements or boilerplate language. We share checklists of topics that are important to discuss. For example, if a person is considering leasing some property to start a farm or to move their farm to, important things to discuss would be what are the expectations for use? You know, is it just vegetable production? Is livestock allowed? How does the landowner feel about on farm processing? Is agritourism 
Are they comfortable with that? Is that okay? Uh, what about workshops? Also, the length of the lease, is it annual? Is it going to renew each year? Is it an annual lease, a three-year lease, a five-year lease? And if it's annual, is what's the process for renewal and also termination? You know, do we need to give each other notice for when our relationship ends? And when does that notice need to be given by? And how should it be given? In writing, a phone call, will a text do? And the reason having conversations about these kinds of issues is so important is because, you know, Emma, if I'm wanting to lease some land from you or Mary, I'm wanting to lease some, some of the farm out there in Maryland, you and I will come up with a solution that truly meets or close to meets our needs much more so than default statutes or default state laws. So state law might say, I'm not familiar with Maryland off the top of my head, but state law might say that, you know, you only need to give me notice of 30 days for the lease to be terminated. And if I'm leasing, wanting to lease land from you to grow garlic, you know, I want to go big on garlic. That is a crop that goes in generally in our parts, November and comes out the following summer. And if I get a call saying, hey, so sorry, we're going to have to end our relationship which does happen. And I think it's important that we put that as a possibility on the table that relationships can and do end. If I find that out in February, it is far too late for me to recoup the costs of all that garlic seed that I would have sown in the ground that's already, you know, a quarter of the way established to some harm would have been done at that point. And we're so much better off if we can get on the same page about termination, renewal, what our relationship will look like, whether it's a relationship with land, a relationship with a CSA program, a relationship with a worker or an employee or an intern or a volunteer. You know, we cover all of this at Farm Commons and it's really empowering to be able to find solution through conversation with another person and not from a book of words, which of course our laws are there as a baseline for us to refer to, but we have so much power to create our own solutions if we want to take it. I love how you keep using the word relationship as in everything is in a relationship. So it's not just person to person who's running the farm together or whether it's romantic or business or whatever, but it's literally your relationship with the landowner, with the land, with your subscribers, with your CSA members, with all of that. I'm willing to bet that most people that are pursuing their farming dream are not thinking about all of these things. Do you think that's accurate? Are you describing something like prenuptial with your farm <laughs> or yes. your farm, your landowner or yeah, whoever it is you're setting up an agreement with? It could be like in your case, the partner that you were farming with, that was a personal relationship as well as a business relationship. And then you have the farm and the CSA members and all these things. So where does one start if, you know, someone out there and all this is just in the idea phase and they might be listening to this and thinking, oh, wow, you know, I never thought of all this. Where do I go? Do they go to Farm Commons? Farm Commons is a great place to start. We have resources to answer many questions that farmers either currently have as they're in business or can envision themselves having later on down the road, whether it's I've you know, want to get insurance to cover my agritourism venture, or I want to form a limited liability company for my farm business. So those types of questions are definitely pathways on our new website. Um, but I would say even before getting there to having those like more particular legal questions, a great place to start and this is just from my own experience. Like, I wish I did this. I wish my then partner and I had sat down and asked ourselves, what is our vision for the farm business? What is our individual and collective vision? And something that I'm embracing more, especially having recently visited my family in New Zealand, is the like indigenous Moana Oceana world perspective of a 500-year plan of... You know, like, wow. what is our vision for how we're going to continue the wave of our being? Like, this worldview that I'm cultivating right now is like seeing myself as like the tip of a wave. And this wave has been building over many generations from 
mamas to grandmas to grandfathers and great grandfathers. And, you know, everything that we're doing now has been informed by what those before us have done. It's, you know, literally like the mark of the land that we are making is upon many other marks. And we are not the first people to be in relationship on a piece of land trying to feed ourselves and our community. And so envisioning how our goals could play out over 500 years. <laughs> like that's what I think we need to think about when we're talking about vision. What will our legacy be and how do we see our place in it right now? And that forces, you know, much more than an hour long meeting over dinner or just a happenstance conversation between brushing teeth or having coffee in the morning or between meals. I know some farm couples who don't even eat until like, you know, 5 p.m. in the day because they're so busy growing food. And yeah, just starting with getting on the same page about your vision, I think can do so much for identifying what challenges exist and what is strong that can be built upon as you grow the farm business. And I will say just on a legal note, the law is not accessible you know, people go to law school, they rack up tons and tons of debt. And, you know, our work at Farm Commons is so much translating the law into basic terms that are just the essentials that farmers need to know in order to move forward. And that takes time. It takes resources that not many people have the privilege of having. And so I do recommend that folks check out Farm Commons and also Cooperative Extension and in whatever state you might be in, because there are often legal guides that have been put together on various subjects, whether it's food safety, land leasing and purchasing. Yeah, there's so much there, but I think the best place to start is with the vision for the individuals, the relationship and the farm business and see where things intersect and where they don't. And I'm happy to say I am in a very healthy relationship right now. <laughs> And we are still on the farm. This is a new relationship. Well, we've been in it for a few years, but we spend so much time and energy into communicating what our vision is for organizing the produce and the fruit bin. Like, do we share a vision of putting the new produce in the back, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and what is our vision for, you know, making our meals in the summer more easeful? And we found that our we have a shared vision for batch cooking on Sundays and parceling it out into pint containers that we freeze and we put the newest in the back and we use those in the front first. And um, we've talked about our vision for how we're going to care for ourselves, ourselves in 30 to 40 years. And so we decided we want to open up a shared bank account and also open up a shared investing account. We've talked about what is our vision for getting farm chores done. And we've decided... We're going to do it around our full-time work schedules. And so we're going to share a vision for waking up early and getting work done before breakfast. And we know that we're going to do it before breakfast. So one of us isn't like, do I make breakfast while you do chores? Or like, oh, I'm hangry now. We forgot to talk about breakfast. Like we talk about, you know, as many pieces of the puzzle as we can think about. And if we don't, we inevitably forget about something, whether it's telling someone about a podcast interview, you know, at a certain time of day when the other one was expecting to make lunch or whether, you know, one of us decided to go seed some stuff in the greenhouse when the other one had off farm plans, but wanted to seed. I mean, you know, we inevitably forget, but we learn how to communicate better for next time. And I think that's so much a part of legal resiliency too. It's all about relationships because what a lot of us aren't taught, and I think it's so important that we know, is that the law is what we agree to do for and to each other written down. And that is a relationship just written down on paper. Eva, you could be like an advisor, a farm entrepreneur advisor, and people would contact you when they're in the dreaming stage and you could go over all these things and you could tell them what they can do for themselves, what they can look up on the internet, what farm commons can do for them. And just the very exercise of going through this whole thought process, I would think would be so, so valuable to people. Do you do that already kind of with farm commons? <laughs> we do offer workshops. One that I lead is for farmers. It's called Discovering Resilience. And it's a five-week online course where 
farmers learn the 10 best practices for legal resilience and also their legal contacts, and they get to practice communication tools in support of those action steps in live meetings through Zoom space, of course, but along with their peers. And so we're in the midst of a couple of March workshops for that particular curriculum right now. And so far, we have the whole gamut of farmers, folks who have been in it for you know decades to folks who are just now getting started. Farmers who are in the midst of transitioning from CSA to agritourism and workshops and wanting to, you know, cover their legal risks there. And also folks who are still in the dreaming phase who just want to go into their farm business with as many tools and helpful bits of knowledge as possible. And they've identified the law as one of those sources of knowledge that they want to have under their belt. I'm curious too about these people that you talk to, I guess, just starting out. What's the most common and most overlooked slash most surprising and common thing that you see people encountering? Like the most important, most overlooked. Most important intersecting with most overlooked. From what you've said so far, the way I would answer that question, even though I have, you know, coming from nowhere, people just don't know they haven't thought what they ahead. don't know. <laughs> no, they oh. haven't thought ahead. Yeah. Like yeah. just real simple things like where do we see ourselves in three years? That kind of thing. Yeah. Just looking ahead even a little bit. I mean, there's so much energy around like, you know, getting the land and quitting your job and making this huge transition. And then what? Yeah. And then what? Oh man, that's the question. Well, your commentary has jogged a thought in my mind. <laughs> and that is <laughs> Employment law is such a big area of misunderstanding and also... Like for if you're hiring people to work for you. mm, Yeah. Okay. And the hiring piece is what is primarily misunderstood because employment law noncompliance is so endemic, like we don't even notice it anymore. It's very commonly held that people will have interns and volunteers and apprentices and woofers, worldwide opportunities on organic farm folks coming out to work on the farm. And they may not think of those people as employees. However, (laughs) this is always the kicker in our workshops is that the federal definition of an employee is is someone who is permitted to do the work of a for-profit business. So what this means is for-profit businesses like many farm businesses, unless they're a nonprofit, cannot have volunteers legally. Those people who are being called volunteers are generally, if they are harvesting and packing for market or packing CSA shares and it's a CSA farm, they are doing the work of the for-profit business. And so they would legally generally be an employee. Same with- You have to have them sign something or something that people usually don't do or- it's not, yeah, not even like a signing thing. It's just where this is an issue is if and when that volunteer or intern gets injured and then yeah. their health insurance covers the injury and, you know, a third-party auditor sends a letter to that volunteer asking them where they were when they got injured. Was it at a place of work? Was it at a, you know, some business? they are by law bound to respond to that truthfully or risk losing coverage. And so if they they respond that it happened on a farm um, or if they mention that to the doctor who treats their broken arm or their, you know, leg that got gashed by a broken fence line, then the insurance company is going to investigate and they will reach out to the farm and make a claim because that is what we sign on for when we buy health insurance we surrender the right to sue in our own names. And so many farmers say, what if we just work with our friends? We'll just have our friends and our neighbors come out. You know, they'll, they'll get the work done. We trust them. The thing is though, your friends and your pals on the farm are not the ones who are going to decide to, you know, sue you if they get injured. It's their health insurance company who pays for treating their injuries. So injury is a big risk area that gets overlooked because employment law is not commonly understood. And I, you know, personally, it's my personal perspective, not Farm Commons, is that, you know, it's kind of by design. The law is just so inaccessible in that way. And also people getting disgruntled. And we've seen this more so come up actually in the past year as 
working arrangements get more unique on the farm due to pandemic pressures and, you know, people need to make a living. They need to, you know, feed themselves and take care of their bills and interns have made claims against farm employers saying like, I'm actually an employee and you've not paid me what I'm due. You know, this CSA share is not meeting minimum wage requirements and you owe me this money or I've worked overtime because I've, depending on what the laws in the state are, if they've done, you know, non-farm work that qualifies for overtime, they may be owed that. And so employment law is a big, big, squishy gray area that many people don't know about. And it's important to know about because the penalties can't, they are real. Back wages, back taxes can really add up and put a lot of businesses, especially beginning farm businesses, if there's not a lot of cash in the coffers, may not be ready for an issue like that to come up. Wow. Thank you for saying that. (laughs) Yes, because you know, volunteer days and all that kind of stuff is a really common is something you see a lot. And, you know, I just wonder if all the people that are hosting those are aware of these things. And I'm also thinking of um, pick your own because technically people that come pick your own stuff, they're doing the work, they're harvesting. Does that have special designation? That's a really good question that you're posing, Mary. And it's actually one that we get so often in workshops. And it's a great question to guide learning more about how the law works. And so if we think about the legal definition of an employee as being someone who's permitted to do the work of the for-profit business, and we apply that to a pick-your-own farm, the work of that pick-your-own business is to grow pickable, beautiful crop that people want to come out and pay to pick. And so that is the work of the farm. So if you have pick your own flower farm. The job would be to grow, you know, beautiful flowers that people want to pick, planting them, seeding them, making sure that the pathways are cleared so people can access them. That is the work. That would be the work of that for-profit farm. The actual picking is the thing people are buying. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. But that, no, that's a really good question to help think about like what what is the law actually saying? Yeah. I think I'll continue on with saying a bit about legal risk management and like, this is the law, but it's all about like your decision-making process. Whether you want to follow the law or not, is up to you. Yeah. My question would be Farm Commons, sounds like it's a national organization, so it's all over. And you guys, it sounds like you don't specialize in any, you know, the states are different all over, but you kind of help, you guide people to... I guess, asking the right questions? Yeah, we do guide farmers to asking questions that we do have detailed guides on. We have over 200 written legal guides that our staff of attorneys have put together and we have many states research. We've done it all through grant-funded projects. And so we're actually in the process of building out a whole employment law library for every single state. (laughs) And I think we have like 35 of them fully researched. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. It's a lot (laughs) and it's good. It's good information, but it's not so compelling to get that kind of research funded because states are like, why do you need to research that? Oh, then like all these employment claims happen. Okay. You actually do need to research that. Here's the grant money to do it. I want to hear a little bit more about you personally. And you've talked about it a little bit, kind of where you are with the farm, but what's kind of your personal ethos around your own homestead at this point? And your own, I, you're not farming for profit anymore. You're really just kind of farming for yourself and your family. Tell me a little bit about that and how you do so much and still embrace slow living, as I know that you do, because I know you, but you do a lot. So just tell me a little bit about that. Uh, thanks, Emma, for the compliment. Yeah, we do really, my partner Les and I do focus quite a bit on enjoying our time. And we find that enjoying What we do with our time involves moving more slowly and learning to say no and setting boundaries around our time so that we can enjoy seeding and planting and time in the garden. Or yesterday we were just sitting outside and he was whittling a spoon and I was reading in the sun with our dog. And we also were able to batch cook a pot of beans for the week (laughs) and Mm -hmm. meet those goals. So I do think a lot of it has to do with setting healthy boundaries and learning, which I have been learning the past year and a half, that no is a complete sentence. 
and not committing to too many things. I think, you know, in this time of social media, especially during the pandemic, we're, you know, eating up so much pictures of what people are doing all over the world, you know, whether it's fiber art or canning or no-till gardening or raising dairy cows at home and milking and making own cheese in the kitchen and making pasta from scratch, you know, like we're seeing it all and we want to do it all. And I think that drive is good and honorable, but also sets us up for failure. Because if, you know, we spread ourselves too thin, we get into what I understand is hurry sickness and we can't fully immerse into the gifts of whatever practice we're wanting to pick up because we're trying to pick up too many practices that are literally our hands are overflowing and we end up kind of like in a state of paralysis. At least that's been my experience. So maybe I shouldn't say we, I should just say me. And if it resonates with you, you can be we with me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that hurry sickness. Yeah. It's a term that I picked up from this old vegetarian cookbook from I think the seventies, Laurel's Kitchen, where there's this whole chapter about time management and avoiding hurry sickness. And if you're going to bake a loaf of bread, like set aside the time, get your ingredients together, be there in the kitchen, don't have the news on, you know, don't try to multitask. Like if you're going to make some bread, make it. Well, this brings up something, you know, the whole idea of homesteading is kind of to do all this stuff. So you know, how do you reconcile that? Like if you're really homesteading, like our ancestors did, or even people like a hundred years ago, where you are baking the bread and making the butter and milking the cows and raising the food and raising the children and shoeing your horses and whatever all people do. So we do a lot of these fun things. We do what we want to do, but we're by no means completely self-sufficient and aren't even necessarily trying to do that, but some people are. Oh, Mary, you bring up so many good points (laughs) and a lot of feelings for me because I grapple so much with the word homesteading and also with the word self-sufficiency because of the historical implications, but also the relationship implications and like the history of homesteading like goes back to 1800s and the Homesteading Act, which allowed many people to move west and settle millions of acres of land who were not from there and cause the forcible removal of natives off that land. And I was actually doing a bit of etymological research into the word homestead and to stead is to kind of like take up the space of something else to, you know, stead to, to, to hold be steadfast instead and to homestead is like if if I think about it it's like ah it's to hold in place of someone's home or put your home in place of something else and I mean that's what a lot of people today are doing on on farmland on land that was stolen many years ago and You know, my recent trip to New Zealand or Aotearoa was so eye-opening for me because I forgot how much I missed my family and being around all of the strong women in my mother's side of the family and hearing them speak Samoan and watching them cook fish over the fire and telling stories of traditional symbols in our tapa cloth and in the tattoo tradition of Samoa and all of these indigenous practices that are very much alive and intact in the islands. My mom's father is a chief in Fusi Safata, the village that his ancestors had settled and is still growing taro and cocoa. And because I'm here in North Carolina, I'm so far away from all of that indigenous wisdom and practice. And so I feel so much for the indigenous people of North America who have been displaced as a result of the origins of homesteading. And at the same time, really appreciate people who make it a goal to grow their own food and to get in touch with the soil and their food and their community. And I think that self-sufficiency has come about by people, you know, 
maybe leaving town and going to the country or trying to, you know, make the bread, do the milk to make, turn the butter and make the clothes and do as much as possible on their own, which would be so much more vibrant and colorful if done in community. And so my mom is actually one of 16 <laughs> and wow, many tasks are made short work because everyone is involved. They're involved in the cooking or the child raising or the home building or the food preparation for Sunday supper. And so it's not so much self-sufficiency, but rather community resiliency and mm. I'm encouraged here in the U.S. of the increasing interest in cooperatives, not only like co-op grocery stores, but many of the farmers we work at, with at Farm Commons right now are interested in forming farm cooperatives where they grow, produce flowers, make value-added good products that they sell together to CSA, you know, a, a more diversified CSA share or create a farm stand together. And so what that looks like for us here on our version of a homestead that I don't want to call a homestead, but it's very much a part of like the current understanding of what that is right now. Like we'll trade flowers for jam or less we'll go and help our neighbor chop wood and they'll give them some venison or pork cuts in return. And right. we check on our friend's rabbits and their horses when they're out of town and they do the same for our dog and our cat and water our garden while we're gone and so I think self-sufficiency is so is missing out on so much opportunity with the possibility mm -hmm. of what community resiliency can offer um, when we understand ourselves as connected to the greater whole rather than on a plot of land by ourselves making it on our own. Yeah, I really love that. I love the idea of sort of like yeah. reclaiming that word and that those ideals because there's so much to the self-sufficient ideal that's like so cool and empowering to me, like breaking from the industrialized systems that we've come to rely on and like, you know, putting funneling all the resources to very, very few people at the top and those sorts of things. But also what it does, the under like the gross underbelly of that self-sufficiency is kind of the the underbelly too of being, you know, too individualistic and too just seeing the world, you know, the one narrow minded. And so community resiliency is like, what would it be like if that's what we strove for? I love that. Yeah. And just to continue what you said, Emma, or reiterate it, I think sometimes when we speak of self-sufficiency in terms of like modern day homesteading, it has to do more with pulling back from those systems rather than trying to take over someone else's land or whatever. Do you know what I mean? That in itself will build community because it's really difficult to do all these things in isolation, yeah. even for a family. I mean, I think sometimes community happens naturally. Hopefully community happens naturally when you have a people in a similar location that have similar goals. But what's interesting about that is now we have online communities <laughs> because of the pandemic and the way technology works. And so that's another idea, you know, how can virtual communities help us attain the same goals without bringing up these sort of isolationist, individualistic, I, me, mine thing. Like mm -hmm. I have enough food for my family, but, mm -hmm. and we don't have to go to the grocery store. So we're good. How helpful yeah. is that? Yeah. That's why I think the work you all are doing at Lady Farmer with the Almanac and the Slow Living Challenge and the Slow Living Retreat is so important because you're, you're in essence helping people to set that intention by giving a clear, here's what we're focusing on right now. Here's how you can go deeper. Here's what you can do. And you support that focus over time. And I really appreciated the diversity of sessions you offered for the retreat. I wasn't able to actually attend, but I was like hardcore watching the schedule and following along with people's Instagram stories. And, you know, people set aside an hour of their time to learn how to make sourdough bread and also another hour of their time to focus on scheduling. And this was an hour of time, you know, focused on, let's take the bread example, making, actually, I think it was sourdough biscuits. 
hosted by Mallory Spicer yeah. of Mallory Spicer Grimm of Hen of the Woods. <laughs> Shout out to Mallory, also a Swanee gal. And, you know, that's a curative time of focusing on making those biscuits where you're watching someone on the screen teach you how to do the thing you're doing in real time. And there's no time to be scrolling or, you know, trying to do the laundry at the same time or like Mm -hmm. talking to mom on the phone. I mean, maybe some folks, you know, had to do that out of necessity, but the platform that you're offering is encouragement and like helping carve out that space to move slowly, um, minimizing the distractions. So I really appreciate what you're bringing to the slow living culture. It's important. Thanks, Eva. so nice yeah thank you so much Eva what does the good dirt mean to you and that can be literally or metaphorically Mm. I love that question and I love that the podcast is called the good dirt because dirt has enough bad connotations like we really need like more more good ones and for me the good dirt is very much about, you might guess it, if you've been tuning in and maybe Mary and Emma can guess, but really about relationship. <laughs> Our relationship to the literal soil, you know, going out and tending it. If it's, you know, really eroded soil, you're working with amending it with um, organic matter, nutrients, minerals, planting, you know, cover crops and um, nutrient fixing plants and making sure to add back in what you're taking out. I usually tell folks who ask me gardening questions to think of their soil as uh, kind of like a bank account. Like if you withdraw funds, you're going to run empty at some point. So you need to put some back in. And that's usually an accessible metaphor that folks can, can think of their soil as. But in terms of relationship beyond, you know, my relationship in the soil right now, dirty hands, the amount of bacteria you know, interacting with other microorganisms and interacting with inert material and minerals and rocks and fungi and worms is a beautiful pathway, to use another word we've we workshopped in our conversation, to living our own lives in community with other people and our resources and our built infrastructure and our woods and connecting back to many generations. So, so much of time and space is encompassed in the soil at different strata of different ages. And if we can think about our own lives in terms of what have our parents gone through and what have our grandparents gone through and what have you know, 500 years before us gone through and reach back to that wisdom that is always percolating around us. It may not be written down. It may be passed on orally. It may be lost, but I, I do believe that energy is always there just as every layer of soil goes somewhere. You know, it might be in the ocean. It might be deep down beyond, beneath us, but we can, we can do the work of reaching. And I think that's good and it's honorable work. And for me, that's the good dirt. That's so beautiful, Eva. Yes. So this has been such a wonderful conversation that's gone so many different directions that I never expected. It's wonderful. It's been really good dirt, Eva. <laughs> oh, good. I'm so, I'm so glad. And the many different directions may give a cue into my sun sign. I am a Gemini. So oh. it would make good sense that I would talk about as many <laughs> subjects as possible. But I appreciate you all um, guiding the conversation too. Well, we have one more question. What is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you do? What would you like to leave our audience with before we say goodbye this afternoon? Before we say goodbye, I would love for everyone to know that they have, in regards to the law, significant creative power to create and cultivate the farm business and the farm lifestyle that you all want if you take the time to talk about your needs and your goals and your expectations to grow your slow living, your lady farmer, your your resiliency dreams far into the future. And it's not easy, but it's well worth the work. And I would also like to dispel the notion that talk is cheap. Talk is absolutely not cheap. It takes a lot of work and when done with intention, holds incredible value that can last 
many, many generations. And I encourage folks to think about their 500-year plan as they go into (laughs) conversations with loved ones, um, whether it's a romantic partner, a family member, a landlord, a neighbor, a customer, or another business partner that you want to collaborate with. Think about your vision for the future together. Thank you so much. Yeah, but that 500-year plan thing blew my mind. Same with the homesteading thing I'm going to be thinking about. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Same here. Wow. That, yeah, a lot to think about. So thank you so much, Eva. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. We just really enjoyed this. And I know that our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Eva. Really helpful advice, helpful guidance, helpful planning and thinking ahead to make everyone's farm dream and vision a reality. So thank you so much. Yeah. And thank you so much for being here. Good Dirt listeners. As we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, we do have an email address, thegooddirtpodcast at gmail.com. Please reach out to us. Tell us any guests you'd love to have on the show, any feedback. Just say, hey, introduce yourselves and let us know your plastic challenges, especially for this month of July. <laughs> if you're not already following us on Instagram, you can find us at We Are Lady Farmer. Our website is ladyfarmer.com. We have a newsletter and we're here every Friday. We love to be here and thank you for being here and come back for more good dirt. Thank you, everybody. Have a good weekend. Bye.